Welcome to season two of the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Deeper Tony, editor of the Forbes Under 30. On this show, the world's top business leaders and young entrepreneurs share their big wins, important failures, and tips on how to compete in today's fierce business climate. But first, this podcast is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp's all-in-one marketing platform allows you to manage more of your marketing activities from one place so you can market smarter and grow faster. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Forbes interview. Today, we have an amazing guest. We have the founder and executive chairman of ClassPass, Pyle Kadakia. Pyle, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've known each other for a while. This is actually pretty funny. We first met in a barn of all places at Colgate University years ago um, through an entrepreneur weekend. And then we were last hanging out beachside in Tel Aviv. So this is, uh, it's come full circle. Yes, it has. It absolutely has. And now I'm in beautiful Jersey City and you're in LA. You're in a better spot, frankly. <laughs> yeah, LA, you know, always wins on weather. <laughs> so give me a quick update on what's going on with ClassPass. Let everyone kind of hear what the latest and greatest is. Yeah, so we've had uh, a few great updates over the past year. Um, I think some of the things that are top of mind and, you know, we've been really excited about uh, is one, our geographic expansion. So we're, you know, now in over 20 countries uh, nine of which we launched this year. We're expected to be in 30 by the end of the year. So bringing ClassPass all over the world, which has been unbelievably exciting. Then we've also launched our corporate wellness program, which is very much focused on helping employers and employees, you know, really incentivize them to work out, right? I think a lot of programs that are built in this space don't always have incentives for people to actually work out. And we've really designed this product to make sure people are working out. And then the third, and one that I think for me as a founder, it's really been aligned with the vision, is adding wellness to our platform. So we have wellness experiences, um, everything from meditation, facials, massages, cryotherapy, um, to really expand on the value proposition that we started in the boutique fitness space. That's great. It's it's interesting you said 20 countries. I'm always interested in kind of the cultural and uh, different habits, especially with, you know, wellness and working out. Are you seeing any really interesting findings or differences between someone in LA or New York versus somewhere overseas? Are certain types of workouts more popular in different areas or is it kind of universal? I mean, you know, what's interesting is ClassPass sort of um, sits on top of a lot of trends, right? So it's actually more of something that we see constantly changing in uh, sort of through time and seasonality. You know, it's in the summers, people work out at a certain time or when it's cold. Um, I think what's really interesting, though, is we do see some cultural differences in sort of the type of things people like doing. So, you know, in Amsterdam, people love biking, right? Uh, per se, in Australia, people love outdoor workouts. So we definitely go in and make sure that the inventory really is tied to the lifestyle that we're, you know, really um, incentivizing in that country. You have all this data. Is there like a... Who's like the class fast power user? Are there people that like work out like a, three times a day and just totally like just blow your mind in terms of how many classes they're actually taking? Yeah, I mean, we have people, you know, I mean, I think ClassPass, you know, has really evolved to be whatever you want it to be for your fitness workout. You know, uh, we see people who um, use it as a supplement for themselves. We see people who use it as their, you know, liver die workout, like you said, every day, sometimes twice or three times a day. Uh, but it really works. It has that flexibility in the way we've really even evolved our model uh, from a pricing and product standpoint as well. I want to talk about your kind of this, the founding story, which is interesting. And your background, um, you know, you are a, um, a dancer, but also, uh, you know, went to MIT, which is a, you don't kind of think of those two com- <laughs> together. And that right. kind of is what class passes in a way, like you're combining fitness and wellness with hardcore tech and platform. Like take me back exactly. to kind of this, uh, I love the origin story and I've heard it a couple of times, but for my listeners, I, <laughs> take me, take me way back. 
Yeah. So um, just about uh, nine years ago, um, I was sitting at my desk. I was working in the music industry. And as you mentioned prior to that, um, you know, I did go to MIT and then I worked in consulting at Bain. Um, so I've had, you know, I had about five, six years of good, like good experience sort of working in the workplace here, um, in, especially in New York City. And I was at the point where I had also built a dance company and dance was a very big part of my life since I was a child. And it was something that was important for me to keep in my life. And because of that, I really wanted to find a way to help other people with their passions. And I was sitting at my desk. I went to go look for a, a new ballet class to take. Seemed like, you know, a normal Monday that I was having. Uh, although in that experience for me, I realized that I was, you know, on 14 different websites trying to find which class to take, see which teacher was right, see if the timings worked. And in that moment, I realized, what if there was a search engine for all these classes? And mm -hmm. at that time, uh, there were a lot of other models such as ZocDoc and OpenTable and Seamless Web sort of doing this in what people at that time was, were calling like the online to offline market. And there was nothing in this space. And that was really sort of that aha moment for me to say, this is really the space that needs some innovation. I have, you know, the technology background, the leadership background, the creativity to hopefully make this happen. And that was sort of the, the dream that got us here. And how, I love that, that first step. So you were working at, it was Warner Music. Yep. And what were you, what were you doing there? I was doing digital strategy. So I was uh, helping with a lot of the licensing deals uh, that were going on, especially in that phase. I mean, this is when digital sort of was being introduced in terms of uh, how rights were going to be uh, sort of given right from the music labels to a lot of these companies that were coming out. I spent a lot of time actually with Daniel Eck from Spotify wow, during that Daniel's time, great. which was which was great. Yeah. And he's become such a great you know mentor. Uh, to me personally, uh, but it was amazing to see how technology and actually, I think for me as a founder, what I learned the most in that time was the best, you know, companies that really were succeeding at the time were the ones that were very consumer friendly, easy to use, you know, didn't have uh, a lot of, um, you know, bolts and whistles with it. I think, you know, when you remember that time, do you remember all the the tethering and the number of downloads and all those different gimmicks that yep. all the different sites had? And I just remember, you know, I would be making these spreadsheets and I was like, wow, okay, this one has three, this one has four, this one has one. What customer is ever going to remember any of this, you know? And then there came Spotify, which was, you know, very seamless for the customer. And so I'm not surprised that they, you know, sort of, uh, you know, got the home run there. No, it's crazy too that, I mean, I'm sure everyone has frustrations all day long when they're sitting at their desk, but the difference is you actually had a frustration and then decided to do something about it. Like, well, and you had a great, you had, it sounds like you had a, you know, very interesting job. It sounds like a very, a dream job kind of thing. What kind of, how did you go from Warner to starting this, I get uh, this fitness um, app or fitness company, I should say? Yeah. So um, I, you know, I had this idea while I was working. Um, I think the few, like the ways I started were first, I wanted to validate the market. I think, you know, in any day, in any, in any idea that you have, you just have to make sure that there's going to be customers who want it. There's a, you know, a marketplace that actually exists. And I think, as I mentioned, you know, there was validation in sort of products that existed in other industries. Um, so once I had that, I obviously did a lot of research on sort of the class space and that was sort of step one. Um, I think step two was, um, starting to build a team. And I luckily, you know, as I was, uh, talking about this idea to people, especially because I was trying to once again, understand if people wanted something like this, I had a lot of friends who were like, can I give you money? How do I help? And um, one of them actually, Sanjeev Sangavi, 
he was, you know, a childhood friend of mine, also very active in dance, martial arts. He was like, you know what, Pyle, like I want to invest, but more than that, I think I'm ready to quit my job and help you with this. So, you know, he was somebody who became my original co-founder and sort of that was sort of step two. Um, and then the next big step, uh, outside of even raising some capital was quitting my job, yes. uh, which is never easy, but, uh, after about five months of working and sort of thinking about this idea, uh, I got to that moment where I just knew I needed to spend, you know, my full time mm -hmm. energy on this. You know, it was kind of hard to kind of just be spending my extra hours on it. And um, I, you know, walked into work and I quit. Obviously, one of the scariest days of anyone's life. But I think what I learned in that day was how many doors open when you cross a bridge like that. And um, I walked out on the day I quit with a $10,000 check from the vice chairman of my company. That's and I think of that as like just this amazing validation of when you're, you know, doing something you love. And once again, I always, you know, tell people it's obviously you have to do what you love, but you know, I think I also had a lot of money saved up from the six years I was working. So I knew I could take, you know, two, three years of my life to really go and pursue something that I really wanted to. Well, that's a good investment by your, uh, your former uh, boss too. So that's good for him. Exactly. <laughs> for her. exactly. And, and how, it's interesting. So you said kind of, once you make that leap, you kind of burn that bridge behind you, uh, burn the ships behind you. So you, I, were you like doing this at, before moonlighting, kind of working on it at nighttime. And then you decide like, I'm going to go full time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, in, previously while I was working at Warner, I also built my first startup, which was a dance company. So I was used to that. I was very much used to this, you know, work all day, uh, every weekend, all, you know, cause I mean, I was either working or dancing in the evenings or performing. And so I was just used to this lifestyle of, of, you know, using the hours of my life efficiently. And so it wasn't anything new to me to sort of, you know, after work, make sure I, you know, was just working on my pitch decks and figuring out how I was going to raise money and, you know, validating the marketplace. And after you tell everyone, Hey, I'm quitting my job. I'm doing this full time. How does that change? Do people kind of take your idea more seriously? They take you more seriously. This isn't like a hobby that you're you know, now committed to this. Yeah, actually I have a great story for you on that. You know, I think there was a moment right after I quit where I, um, actually like the, you know, I, I, once again, I was very close to the Spotify guys and they were like, why don't you come work here? You know, and it seemed pretty exciting at the time yeah. they were opening their New York office. And I went to go talk to one of my advisors, uh, Anjula Acharya. And, you know, I, I actually went in with my deck for this company. And then I, I kind of said to her, I go, you know, should I take this job at Spotify? You know, should I, should I be interested? And she just looked at me and she goes, if you know, you won't bet on yourself, no one else is going to. And that actual moment literally was like that moment in my, in my life that I never looked back. And I realized that I was going full force into building this company wow. because she needed, she basically told me that, right? Like, why would anyone else bet on you? Right. If you, I wasn't willing to bet on this idea and put my life on the line and everything I was doing into putting 150% into this, you know, and it was a big idea. Right. And I think, I think that's, that was really what I needed to hear in that moment to stop sort of second guessing, wait, do I need the comfort zone? Right. I think it's very easy to want the comfort zone. And, and then in a way it ends up taking you away from taking this big leap as you were talking about. Wow. That's great. And when you go to build this company, you know, there's always been this kind of the, the myth of the, the college dropout starting something young and stuff, but you, you know, you graduated from MIT, you took a very structured and interesting job at Bain. And then it was working with, at, with, in the music industry. How did kind of your past career experience, your past corporate experience affect building this company? 
It's a great question. And, you know, sometimes I, I have to like, I always like look back and I'm like, am I really a risk taker? Am I risk averse? Like, I don't know where I actually lay on, lay on that line. You're a risk taker. Um, the, You're a risk taker. Yeah, I know I'm a risk taker, <laughs> but you know, the way I think about it is I do, I take calculated risks and I also, um, I've, you know, my parents, the way they brought me up, my parents like immigrated here from India. I think, I think they, you know, they always wanted to make sure that I had not, it wasn't just about stability. It was about responsibility. And so I think for me, you know, for example, like even in college, I always set my life up to say, okay, if I got straight A's, I allowed myself to dance. Right. And I yeah. think with work and starting this company, I kind of would set milestones in my life of, okay, if I, you know, I made sure I wasn't spending more than a certain amount of money. Uh, I made a budget with my, you know, with my dad. And I was like, here, you know, I've got money and it saved up for, you know, two and a half, three years to be able to do this. Um, I think that responsibility was also really important to me because I wasn't, I, I felt like it was going to prepare me to be more focused on uh -huh. my company. And I think that's a really important thing when you take these leaps is if there's anything distracting you, it takes away from you being able to put right 150% into building your company. So I think that was one thing that um, I think is important to mention as, as we're, you know, as we think about entrepreneurs and, and all the, and the different facets, but that being said, you know, just being um, at MIT, of course, you know, I think MIT, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Mm -hmm. And I always think back to that in, in terms of um, my background and the experiences I've had, because it teaches you a way to think. And I think what it taught me more than anything was uh, not to be scared of solving a problem that may seem complicated. So it's it's about learning how to you know peel the layers of the onion away and not being afraid to kind of keep focusing and get to the heart of it. And I think as an entrepreneur, you never really are at the center, right? You're mm -hmm. still peeling, and you kind of have to know how to keep problem solving. And I think that is one of the the most important things that I learned um, from school. And then, I mean, a place like Bain taught me, you know, how to really exist in the real world and how the world works, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think being an entrepreneur, being someone who wanted to um, change the world, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to say, but then you have to realize how the real world works, how people make decisions in companies, um, you know, how people sort of work together, how teams are led. And I think that experience, you know, on top of obviously, you know, learning about different industries uh, and sort of the mechanics also helps me sort of be big picture with my company, but mm -hmm. I also know how to get my hands in, into the, into weeds. And I think I learned that the most through dance. Like I think dance taught me how to, you know, perfect every little detail that I needed to, how to, you know, assemble a show, how to get people there, how to, you know, put together our artists essentially, which is a whole different landscape of people and how to work with them. And right. that's very similar to our studio owners. And after you made this decision to do class pass full time, what was the next move? Is it hiring talent? Was it getting clients? Was it raising money? Or was it all three at the same time? Yeah. I mean, when, uh, by the time I, you know, had quit my job, I had, um, a little bit of money from friends and family. Uh, I really was focused on, uh, my product and building it. I think, um, and I think I've learned this lesson for, you know, many times over is that your product is the most important thing. Um, and so once again, I did have, you know, a few folks, um, who I had hired, uh, at the time, most of them were actually friends and people who I had known through my network and through uh, previous jobs and experiences. So uh, there was about four of us at the time, and um, we were, you know, we we were building the product. I think that was the most important thing. We were trying to figure out how do we, you know, get all this, uh, get all the class data onto one platform in a way that's real time. So whether that was scraping or real time um, caching, we were figuring out how we were going to do that. Uh, we were building sort of the UI and the experience for our customers. So that was really the first step that we, we took. Yeah. It's tough too. And cause you guys did a big pivot, right? And originally it was kind of a, a search function then it ended up being a subscription function, a function where you're actually 
giving, making a product to sell, correct? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I think when we started, we were, we were looking at these other industries and the search engine model worked. Uh, so we were like, let's go with that model and it should work here after a year of building this. Um, we actually were in the Techstars New York program. We launched our product, you know, around demo day. Um, this was about a year after, and you know, we thought it was perfect, you know, and it was crickets, meaning no one was <laughs> going to class, no one was booking anything, and the whole business model was based on volume. So it was sort of a, you know, a moment to stop and think and to really reassess, you know, what were we doing here? And um, I think in that moment, I realized, you know, just because our first product idea didn't work. doesn't mean we failed. What, you know, we just needed to find another way to answer the problem that we set out to. And so that's when we started testing another idea, which was actually this 30 day product that allowed mm -hmm. people to try a bunch of classes uh, that started having some traction, but it also had some flaws in it because it was a sort of a trial in a way before people would uh, commit to a studio. Um, and then eventually though, what we realized was people were, were, were actually buying this product over and over again with different email addresses. Uh, gotcha, and yeah. that was actually like that, that insight of, wow, people really love variety and there's actually no easy way to do like a spin class on Monday, a dance class on Wednesday, a uh, yoga class on Friday. Um, and that's sort of the insight that we learned in a way by mistake, um, and then that, that was, that was really what told us that this was actually meant to be a subscription product. So we finally in 2013 launched ClassPass as a subscription. And then, you know, the rest was kind of history. <laughs> I love that. I've had so many founders, especially on the consumer side that always say they look to see how users are quote hacking their service. And that's a great way to either pivot or a great way to add, um, functionality and, 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 um, things that the users really want. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you, you really, in a way, have to let your customers play. And I think I, I realized that in a way after trying to actually be perfect their behavior in the, like the first time around was saying like, this is exactly what they should do. And the second time around, you know, we didn't actually build a lot. We were super scrappy, like reservations would kind of come in to my email, my inbox, you know, and I would go and call the studio. That's how it was sort of hacking on the back end because we were like, let's not build all this until we know what our customers actually want. In the new model, you guys built basically a two-sided marketplace. You have to A, attract customers, and then B, attract the gyms and wellness classes. Um, that's a very powerful thing, but it's really hard to build. How did you guys do that? Did you go door-to-door -to, -door to all the, you know, it's all the fragmented, like it's super fragmented, and a lot of it's mom and pop. Like, how did you, how do you start getting your supply to sell to the customers? Absolutely. I mean, we took a lot of classes, that's for sure. Um, as a founder, I think I loved going to class, you know, and I think it was so important that that our studio owners realized that we were building this product for people who we wanted to enjoy these experiences and walk in. And and at the same time, most people were scared. Right. So what was interesting is our our um, our first model that we had built, the passport, which was that in between model. Um, there was act and there's no cost to any of the studio owners. Right. We were literally just being marketing for yeah. them. And then when we launched ClassPass, we actually, you know, we're, we're marketing to them, but we were filling all their excess capacity. So one of the things that we've done from the beginning is we worked with all of our studios to determine how much excess capacity they had in every class, right? So we never took 100% of any class that we knew that they would have their customers going to. Uh -huh. And that was like very important to us from day one. And I mean, now we have these amazing um, algorithms. One of them is called SmartSpot that does this on its own for every single studio owner because we want to protect their business and the, what they're building. And so I think that was something that they always loved because they knew 
that we weren't trying to just cannibalize what they had already built. Um, we were really trying to be incremental to what they had built. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how do the gym owners and class teachers view class pass? Because I remember in the past, I've, I interviewed a, a big shot uh, hotel CEO, and he was telling me how he hates the kayaks or aggregators of the world as necessary evil. What's the relationship between ClassPass and, and the owners, the gym owners? You know, I think um, it's always hard when you're the middleman, right? I think it puts you in it puts you in this position, right, where you're uh, sometimes it causes anxiety for our studio owners, right, because they can't control every single part of their business. That being said, we've given them so many tools. We give them access to all their reviews and ratings. Um, they, you know, they're at the end of the day our product, right? Yeah. Our customers aren't going, you know, it's not class pass. At the end of the day, they go to a class, right? So we try our best to make sure that they know that and that they understand that this relationship is really between, you know, them and the customer. Because at the end of the day, once they show up, it's on them, right? Mm -hmm. To give the best experience they can to our customer. Um, but I do think, you know, in any marketplace business, um, there's always, you know, you always have uh, businesses on the spectrum. Like we have businesses that we help start from scratch, right? Who That have gone on uh, we've helped invest in, you know, building their their next, their second studio, their mm -hmm. third studios. And, you know, and then there's other businesses which, you know, kind of are are not reluctant, but, you know, do want to work with us, but they like kind of almost wish they don't have to, right? But at the end of the day, everyone has excess capacity because these are fixed cost businesses that unfortunately, you know, there is the, you know, noon class that might not get as much traction as the 6 p.m. Have you guys ever thought of kind of st starting your own class pass studios? I know you mentioned Spotify. I know everyone's always asking if Spotify is going to start their own record label, but has that ever come? I'm sure that's come to the table. I mean, you know, we've, we've thought about all different experiences. I mean, there's so many studios out there for us to support though, you yeah. know? So I think in our mind, it's just, there's, there are so many incredible teachers out there for us to do our job with. Um, you know, I think if we did something like that, I could see it more as like an experiential thing, but not, I don't think it would be because we would want, you know, our own studio per se, but we're investing in our studios and helping them grow. You mentioned that MIT was kind of the hardest thing you went through as kind of with ClassPass. What was the hardest moment for you? What was kind of the, the or the big, the scariest moment or the most like on edge um, that you were or the company was? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, you know, there were, there were several moments, obviously when the product didn't work, I think the first time and we had spent a lot of money on it. Uh, I think it definitely it was, it was a moment where I had to, you know, say, Hey, what am I going to do? You know, do I believe this is going to work? Um, how am I going to motivate my team? Uh, and I really needed to think hard. And that was, that was a hard moment because I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't know the answer. And I realized in that moment that I wasn't going to know the answer until I started trying things, um, and sort of in a way failing more mm -hmm. and getting comfortable with that. And so I think coming to that realization took a little bit of time. Um, and then I would say, you know, I think as your company starts growing at, you know, crazy speeds and you're raising all this money, uh, it's really about, you know, how do you make sure that you keep, you know, your vision mm -hmm. alive in your company, right. And make sure that everyone you're hiring is there for the right reasons. And I think, you know, you just have to make sure that you don't get caught up in just like the rat race of needing to win and you know what you're working towards. Uh, and that was always an important thing for me as a founder. And I think making sure that the team always had that spirit was important to me. And there were times where, you know, we, we needed to all realign and make sure that we were all moving in the right direction. Yeah. Cause it's interesting. You, you mentioned you had, you know, your, your four, your four employees and friends and family money and you fast forward, you know, almost 10 years and you guys, what raised over 260 million, 250, 250 yeah, million yeah, exactly. dollars. And how many employees you have 250 employees or more than that? Or? No, more than that. We're, we're 500, <laughs> 500. 
Yeah. It's um, crazy. And yeah, so how do you go from a kind of a scrappy start to suddenly, you know, every, I think a lot of founders say the, the scariest moment, at least with, with talent, is that when there's people in your company that you didn't, you don't know, or people that you didn't yeah. interview yourself. Like, how do you kind of make that, that jump? I mean, you know, I think for us, it happened in gradual spurts. You know, I think for us, like we went through, I would say different phases in our business. Like I think once we figured out product market fit, we went into a huge um, growth phase just in the US. You know, I think this was a phase where we had a lot of copycats, you know, we had um, we had to really move quickly, you know, and I think it was a really it was really interesting because I think what's been nice about all the employees we've always hired at our company is many of them came to the company because they used the product and it changed their life. So even though I might not know everyone, I know like the thread of why they're there. And that sort of always connected the company. We can all go to class together and uh, sort of feel like we're connected. Uh, that being said, you know, yeah, it does it does get hard. And I think it's important. And I, something I've always done as a founder is I've tried to meet every single person. It's obviously very hard, but um, I've also gone, you know, around the world even now to meet many of our employees. And I think what's amazing is um, they're all here for the same reason. And I think like that, I always just credit to what we've built is they're here because they know what the, comp- the product stands for. A few years ago, you, you, you swapped roles from CEO to chairman. What was kind of the thinking behind that? And how has that changed your day to day? As I was saying, you know, as your company begins to grow, I think the role of a CEO significantly changes. And I think as a founder, you know, I started feeling like that role was defining me. And I think as a founder, you just always want to, you know, make sure you're you're adding value to your company in terms of the vision and moving it forward. And it just gets hard, I think, at some point when when you're in that title. And so I think for me, you know, it's obviously easier said than done. But the number one thing for me is, did you did I have the right person? And I think a lot of founders always don't have that. But I was really lucky because Fritz had been a partner to me um, since my seed round. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I knew he believed in the vision. He was sort of always, you know, my right hand and my partner. And so for us, this was just sort of an extension of the way we had always been working. And I kind of, you know, we wanted to swap, swap roles because we kind of just gradually got into that. It's really lucky that you got to you basically, you had an, an early trusted partner that was there the whole time. You, you mentioned that you kind of get stuck in that CEO role and it can be kind of for you as entrapping. What's the difference between what you did as CEO and what's kind of your, your mission and in, in role now? Yeah. I mean, I think um, the biggest change was you know, I stopped being able to just think about like the vision strategy and customers, right? I was more in sort of your, you're thinking about your employees and the day-to-day in, in sort of meetings. Um, and I think for me, I, you know, I have a very creative side to me and I obviously can have the structure too, but I knew that the brilliance of ClassPass really came from my creativity and I needed to find more time for that. And that was really the big part of it is, you know, and Fritz even wanted me to spend more time, you know, whether it was with our customers, you know, our product team, um, sort of brainstorming and actually strategizing where the company was going. So um, I think that was a really big part of it. And even, you know, in terms of helping with the brand and marketing, I mean, I had no time to do any of that. I was yeah. like constantly in back-to-back meetings. And I think it was so important to further share the story of ClassPass and where it came from. And the vision, you mentioned, what is what are you guys working on next? I mean, you have the, the new corporate rollout, which is very cool. And you have this international expansion. What's the plan for the next year or two? What are you focused on and what are you excited about? The dream, you know, in the next few years would be to continue to uh, launch in other categories, even outside of the wellness side. What other dream categories are you guys looking to uh, get into? Going back to even the beginning of when I started the company, uh, we also had uh, art classes on there and photography and music lessons on there. So uh, the dream is obviously to continue to expand on this idea of helping people really, you know, discover their like local neighborhoods and really book, be the booking engine for all their free time. 
you know, we really kind of all are, you know, stuck on our computers and we want to get people out of the house. And there's all these incredible experiences, you know, even long term, um, we'd love to even go into things like concerts and museums and and sort of, you know, experiences that are uh, that can really rejuvenate you. That's all you need, right? Just class pass right. and you opens up One everything. Stop shop. Yeah, you know, Fritz and I always talk about this. We're always like, you know, we want someone like Friday night to be able to go to like a Broadway show Saturday morning, uh, go to a class and then like spend their afternoon like being able to go and volunteer with their family. You know, I think it's it's really living what we say, this holistic life. And um, we call we our vision statement is every life fully lived. And we think about that as, you know, how did you spend your time, right? When you're on your deathbed and you're looking back, it's did you do all the things that you wanted to do. And, you know, I think people um, tend to think that they'll do it, you know, when they're traveling mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, when there's on vacation or just experiences like that. But I think the way we think about it is why can't this be a part of your daily life? Could you leave the listeners with what advice do you have for someone who is maybe has an idea for a company that wants to make the leap from corporate America or something else to starting something? What, what would you tell that person? What, what you did it very successful. What, what's that key advice? Yeah, um, I think one of the most important things, and I think I, as I meet entrepreneurs today, I always ask this question, which is, what problem in the world are you solving? I think it's so important to know what problem you are really trying to solve, right? Because that is the crux of how you're going to know if you solved it. And that's the second part of it is, how did you know when you're going to solve it? The fact that you can build a product because you have an idea and you're just like, oh, I think this would work, right? But why are you solving that? What is the why behind it? And um, without that strong why, I don't know if you're going to know when you solved it. And it's obviously easy to, you know, build a product and make some money off of it and, you know, get all that. But I think I also believe that there's, there are these false signals of success, especially in the world today, which are things like how much money you've raised or even press or even uh, number of followers you have that can sort of prevent you from actually working on the one metric that you might need to. Great advice and a perfect place to end this. I want to thank Pyle Kadakia founder of ClassPass, for coming on the show. Thanks again, Pyle. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. Thanks for listening to the Forbes interview. I'm Stephen Bertoni. Please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'll see you next week.